are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in. Have a seat. Uh, it's been a moment for me. I, I haven't been recording episodes, uh, at least in the past week. It has been a pretty crazy week here at the house. And I'll catch you guys up at the back end of the episode of what's been going on personally. But uh, we are recording this episode on the 18th of September. Uh, and I'm going to try to get it out tomorrow. So this will be a current one. Um, I wanted to uh, very quickly tell all of you that continue to support me on Instagram and support uh, the podcast and the films. And those of you who are in the super fans group, um, I, as you saw my post last week, we are, my recent film Come Home has officially been selected for Film Quest, which is a big deal. Um, and uh, I'm excited to be in this lineup. I will be going out to the festival, which is happening in Provo, Utah. And uh, uh, we are uh, the official podcast for the festival. I talked with the festival programmer last week. Uh, he's excited. He wants me to come out. We're going to try to figure out if I'm going to be out there for the full run, but I will be doing interviews and episodes from the, the uh, actual festival. I'm going to try to pump them out uh, quickly as we do them so that they remain current. But um, we're putting all those pieces together. So I'm excited to take the show on the road. Uh, the festival happens at the end of October. So it's going to be, I think it's like the 27th through the 4th or 5th. Um, and uh, chances are I will be out in Provo, Utah, uh, doing the show, hanging out with filmmakers, hanging out with actors. I think Lance is coming out. Gina, I think, will be joining me. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you've been listening to the show, you know the narrative that I've had on looking for the right film festivals and looking for good film festival experiences. Well, you as the audience are going to be able to live this with me and us as we go through uh, uh, a new film festival and uh, a film festival I've never been in. And, uh, and from what I understand about Film Quest, um, they have been around for 10 years now and they have a reputation for being a great genre festival that programs really great stuff. So very fun, exciting things happening. Um, we are uh, waiting on a couple of other acceptance to film festivals. So stick around more news on the way for that. Um, but today's episode, you know, as you know, as you've been listening, uh, you know that uh, anytime I get to sit down and talk about cinematography, anytime I get to sit down and talk about the visual storytelling uh, task that us as creatives take on all the time, uh, I'm excited. And uh, today I'm sitting down with an accomplished cinematographer, a cinematographer that is shot with some of the best directors working today. You know, a uh, cinematographer who uh, shot uh, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, right? The movie that uh, put Greta Gerwig into the position to be able to do Barbie, which everybody loves. Um, and he's also worked with uh, Noah Baumbach, Spike Jones, Mark Romanek. I think he's actually shot for Kanye West. Um, it's a great get for us on today's show. Uh, Sam Levy joins us. Cinematographer Sam Levy joins us. And we're going to talk about all of it, man. We're going to talk about working with Greta Gerwig. We're going to talk about how he chooses his projects, um, how he sort of gravitates to sort of uh, 
you know, dramatic comedies and uh, how he picks the work that he works with, how he works with crews, how he finds his crews, how he finds his teams. Um, and then we're also nerds for food. So <laughs> best of the best on today's episode. But before we get to it, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy. Thank you everybody for following the podcast on Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D. I had a big moment last week. Uh, we, I crossed on, at Mike Petchy on Instagram, I crossed over 100,000 followers, 100,000 fans that uh, feel the need to subscribe to continuously, there it is, to continuously see my posts about horror pieces, about food, just me talking shit. Um, it humbles me to have uh, an audience of real people that follow me on Instagram, an audience of real people that are engaged with the work. Um, and it blows my mind. I was looking at the stats um, that, you know, just in the past 30 days, uh, you know, the posts about 12KM, the posts about horror stuff, they've reached over five, six million people. Um, and for me, it, it means a lot uh, to find this audience. I've been working really hard on communicating with everybody and talking with each and every person that writes to me and, and, and attempting to respond directly to each and every DM that goes out. And I've been getting deeper and deeper in the DMs lately. I've been, and I love the fact that I'll stumble across a DM as I sort of sort through the structure that is Instagram and how imperfect their message service is. Um, and I'll find people that wrote to me almost a year ago like November. We're almost there. It's almost been a year since this film first went viral. And uh, when I write to them, they graciously respond with the, uh, with the best excitement possible and an understanding and patience. Um, and uh, and it's just the fact that they're still excited uh, means a lot to me. And uh, I appreciate everybody's response to the movie. And I, I really appreciate positive and negative reviews anybody that wants to engage um it's all good for me um and i'm excited as we push forward uh for those of you who have signed up to be a part of the super fans club uh, i'm in the process of you're going to get an email so i'm in the process of putting together an email it's going to have all sorts of really fun stuff in it the super fans going to have access to a brand new t-shirt that we just made you're also come uh october going to be some of the few a uh, few thousand of you that are subscribed, you're going to be the ones to be able to see uh, who's there, which is the other proof of concept that hasn't been released publicly. Um, so uh, big shout out. And if you haven't signed up to be a super fan yet, just leave me a message, send me a message on Instagram, or uh, when you actually get the link to see 12 cam, you'll be able to sign up for the super fan club there too. Okay. Well, that's it, man. That's enough uh, housekeeping. Let's get into it. Sam and I have a lot to talk about. I'm very envious of the fact that he's in New York right now, even though it's rainy and dreary there. Uh, I miss that city. I was just looking at plane tickets the other day, and I just want to go there for like a week and just sort of get lost in the in the in the, just the energy that that city emits, you know. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get a bit of it just by talking with Sam. So strap yourselves in. If you guys are here to learn about cinematography, if you guys are here because you're a Greta Gerwig fan, if you guys are here um, because you want to 
uh, figure out what makes uh, these films so fascinating and where the inspiration comes from to make films like this, you're in luck because Sam and I are going to get into all that. So strap yourselves in, uh, find a nice comfy space, and we'll, we'll put we'll play a track here for you. All right, let's let's cue this up. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love with the Process. Sam, thanks for being on the show. How are you this morning? My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, we were just talking offline, and you were saying how you're in New York right now, and I'm completely envious, because this is the time of year that I love to be in New York, is the fall, and I miss it. Yeah, it's a it, it's a very rainy, wet day, so I don't know if you're pining for that specifically, <laughs> but, but it's kind of nice, too. It's vaguely Parisian, you know, like it sometimes is in the fall here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for making me try to make me feel better, but I, I do, <laughs> I do still, even if it's just the rotting smell of leaves, I, I do miss all of that stuff, especially this time of year. But my favorite times in New York are the fall and then like right around Christmas time, right about the winter time. I love it in there too. So I miss, yeah, I miss, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, a, I'm complaining as it's like 74 degrees and sunny out here. <laughs> so I'm that jerk this morning. Yeah, and we're pining for that over here, so it, it all evens <laughs> out. Well, I appreciate you uh, you joining me on the show today, and uh, I'm a fan of your work. I've seen your stuff for years, and yeah. uh, I'm excited to dig deep into it. Um, let's start. I don't want to start with a lame fucking question. So, um, <laughs> I mean, look, as I go through and I look at your catalog of work, it seems like you're particularly drawn to what seems like an indie artist. Is this true? Like, like how are you choosing your subject material? And, and I mean, you've worked with like Greta Gerwig, you've worked with like Mark Romanek and Spike Jones. Like there's a very sort of specific pedigree that you find yourself working with. Like what's your process for finding directors? Well, it, first of all, thank you. Thanks for those kind words. And, um, you know, it really begins with the script. And it's like kind of a dumb answer probably that most people might say, but, but it really is true. Um, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, no conversation gets started without me first receiving a script. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, when uh, I already knew Greta Gerwig when she offered me Ladybird, and we talked about it a little, 
I knew that it was a movie in Sacramento and we'd shot part of Frances Ha in Sacramento and I'd rave to her at the time about hoping to one day <laughs> shoot an entire movie there. But she <laughs> later told me, gave her a lot of confidence. Um, so, you know, she mentioned that she had this movie and I pretty much in my head thought, oh, I'm definitely going to do that movie because she's brilliant and whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be great. But the first step was, well, let me send you the script and and we'll talk about it. And she was very sweet and said, don't feel you have to do this. And you don't, you don't, don't feel obligated. Um, and then it was, you know, easily one of the best things I've ever read and probably ever will read. <laughs> but yeah, it's that, that's sort of where it begins. And um, there, there is probably a pattern amongst some of the narratives and, you know, genres of, of films I've done, but it isn't in a, in a way it's not necessarily by a specific design. It's mostly that someone sends a script and if it's compelling and reads well, then I'm interested. And then the conversation goes from there. Um, and then sometimes if it's, if it's a person I've worked with before, like, you know, I've done a few films with Noah Baumbach, for example, like mm -hmm. after we did Francis Ha, we, we went on to do Mistress America and while we're young and, you know, I was going to do those no matter what, because I love Noah and we have a lot of fun working together, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, nothing can really move forward until, um, you know, I've read the material and we talk about how it might work or, you know, what, what ideas come forth mm -hmm. and, and I guess, you know, what sort of seemed to happen was after I shot Francis Ha, um, a lot of people in the comedy world uh, started, you know, calling, you know, I, I shot a, a TV series for Judd Apatow crashing. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, later I did recently did Confess Fletch for Greg Matola. Um, and I think a lot of those folks are interested to work with me because of, the work I've done yeah. with Noah and Greta and, and those things, th those films are comedies at the end of the day, even if people don't think of them that way. Yeah. And um, it's not like I really set out to go do comedies. Um, really. It's like if, if a script is great and it's a director I admire, like it was really fun uh, to get to work with Greg Matola, who I think is extremely underrated and, and it's just brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a no brainer um, to go work on good material with a director you admire. And, yeah. and it just, it does kind of shake out in a certain way. Um, but as a cinematographer who, you know, I, I don't, I don't really write, I don't write scripts. I'm not developing the projects I work on for the most part. I did develop and help produce the movie Mayday, which we can talk about, but but for the most part, it's like whoever's calling, that's, that's our authorship is, is, you know, who's calling us on the phone and whether we say yes or no. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. And you're waiting, you know, it, it seems because look, I, I'm nowhere near you are as far as your career is concerned, but I spent years as a cinematographer first and then, uh, you know, transitioned into mostly directing these days. So I have a general understanding of the both of them. And uh, it's interesting as you, as you bring this up, like, cinematographers are reliant upon good material. Cinematographers are reliant upon their relationships with directors. And then, you know, the reputation that they have with those relationships sort of garnering new work and hopefully, 
getting you in the rooms with with directors that you admire, which which makes a lot of sense. The I guess the question is when you're it, it, here's what's fascinating, right? Because there, I've talked to a lot of cinematographers on the show, and mm-hmm. you, you have the cinematographer that is itching to like. <laughs> to like shoot ambulance you know what i mean like the guy who's excited to 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 play with the gear and to go and bring in new technology and really hustle hard to shoot the biggest most bombastic sort of movie like roller coaster ride in a movie theater that they possibly can and then it seems like your films and the films that you worked on are a bit different because you know you describe them as comedies but they're also like very deeply rooted dramas as well and and Mm -hmm. films that are loaded with very quiet sequences and and oftentimes those quiet sequences could be as powerful and as effective to the audience as you know an explosion in a in a, in a car running through the side of a, a skyscraper you know what i mean and so when you're yeah. reading these scripts are you are you drawn to the quiet moments are you drawn to the opportunity to discover character is that is that what pulls you in Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It's, um, I think, um, if a script does have sequences where there's less dialogue, since you mentioned quiet moments, um, uh, you know, where the descriptives, the, the, the scene descriptions kind of go on for maybe a few scenes in a row where there's visual storytelling that's that's a big draw i think to any cinematographer yeah where you know when the dialogue really counts it's not just solely there to fill out the plot um and the storytelling isn't strictly done through um verbal exposition Mm -hmm. that's really exciting um and you know there, there's definitely films i've done i guess you could say ladybird might fall into this category where there's a lot of dialogue in in a movie like ladybird and but what i love about the script is that the dialogue is so musical i mean greta is such a brilliant writer and, and developer of character that the way I think of that kind of dialogue is it's very much like a musical score or even like a sound design in that it's important what the characters are saying and you want the audience to be engaged and paying attention. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, you know, the rhythm of yes. the words is just as important as yes. what they are actually saying. And it's not always necessarily to flesh out the plot. It's, you know, maybe a character's very nervous. And so they're the pitter patter of their nervous dialogue. That's the important thing in the scene. And, and that's just one, you know, maybe that's just my interpretation. The audience may not see it that way, especially if they watch a few times, if you're lucky to have an audience who watches a few times, but it is a big draw. If the framework of a story, even if it's just a few moments, can exist outside of that. And, yeah. and um, you know, maybe, you know, I'm always trying to, when we break down a script and, you know, make a shot list or do a photo board or a storyboard, I'm always trying to find the balance of these transitions between something that's, you know, sometimes, I mean, I just finished a movie that premiered at Toronto for the director, Azazel Jacobs, a movie called His Three Daughters. That's mm-hmm. 
it's very dialogue heavy. And, you know, I think there was like an 11 page speech at one point with one character delivering, telling a story that, that takes place over 11 pages of dialogue. Yeah. And so the challenge there was, you know, how, how do you keep the viewer engaged when someone's talking for 10, 15 minutes? And I think the, the, place I've landed at is what I've been talking about, the musicality of words and thinking of dialogue more like sound design so that the visual architecture of the scenes can really be rich and cinematic and work in concert with those yeah. words. Dude, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. I made, I made a decision years ago to do a film in a language I don't speak. So I, I did a movie completely in Russian. And the wow. challenge that I gave myself as a director was, how do I make this movie interesting if you don't read the subtitles? How do I make this movie? Yeah. How do you how do you get the story across if you're just watching body language? And it was, I think it was one of the most powerful yeah. uh, exercises I gave myself because then, what? But prior to that, in my you know my youth, when I would read a long dialogue sequence, I would just go like, oh god, we have to get through this dialogue sequence. We have to sort of deliver this information, which. I feel like it's a big part of a lot of the shit that we watch right now, which is just like the audience is stupid. They're probably in the other room making mac and cheese at the same time that they're seeing this. So let's just feed them all the plot points and exposition that we can through dialogue. And often, when, oftentimes that coverage is super fucking boring. It's just over the shoulders and wide. And it, it really doesn't express anything with the blocking. It doesn't express anything with the dance and the relationship with the camera or the lighting. I think that yeah, and I, I I'm making a general statement because there are a lot of great stuff out there that are doing that right now. But I think I, for me, when I went through the process of doing something in a different language, it really opened my brain to the the beauty and the joy of doing what would be a three four page dialogue sequence. And now I I revel in it. Now I'm excited about it because it, it's yeah. so so subconscious, and I love that art. You know, when you did the movie with Russian, did you? How did you deal with that? Did you have like a script supervisor who spoke Russian and stuff like that? Or? The, the story the story is this. I had two translators on set. I had a translator to tell me what someone said, and I had another translator to tell me if they were lying about what that person said. Um, but now what we did is we translated the script, because uh, I wrote the script in English, and then I had it translated into Russian, and, and that whole process... Cool in itself was difficult because Russians don't get sarcasm that much. And so, yeah. and then I had a, a few Russian actors that didn't speak English, which, uh -huh. which was also interesting. So I just sort of, I gave faith so, to the people that were there observing and, and paying attention to it. Um, and uh, it worked, you know. And were you in Russia when you made this movie? No, we shot, uh, we shot this movie outside in Boston. So we shot this movie in, Fr oh, wow. in Franklin, and the whole film takes place in the 1980s, and it's about a Russian drill team. So we had to uh, prop it, period, prop it, and put it all together. It was crazy. And the Russian, the people who didn't speak English, were Boston Bostonians, or uh, they came from somewhere else? Some were from Boston. A lot were from New York. Oh. And the, the byproduct of casting uh, a movie that had interesting Russian characters in it instead of just like, you know, car drivers and, you know, like, you know, like mob guys. I had a, a plethora of really amazing actors that wanted to do something that was more than that. And so. So cool. Yeah, man. It was, it was I've great. I've never really done that. I, you know, we, I shot a movie in Croatia called Mayday that my wife, Karen Chinori directed. Super cool. Uh, but it was, it was, the script was 
in English. The entire crew was Croatian, and most of them spoke English well. But then there was you know, maybe a third of the crew didn't really speak English so great. So there was the process just of getting the mm-hmm. you know the day to move of our first AD was Croatian. So he would translate to everybody mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that, you know, I've worked overseas a lot, but never, uh, only sequences in certain movies that are not in English, never the entire thing. I've always wanted to, you should. my dream is to, I uh, speak French pretty well. I've always wanted to do a movie in France and I have actually, I have cousins who are French who work, in film who are always like, it's hard enough for our, us to <laughs> over here. Like, I don't know how you're going to do that. Anyways, <laughs> I, I, I mean, from a visual standpoint, it's such a, it was such a joy. It was almost like doing a silent film, you know? And, and yeah. when, when you mention uh, dialogue as sound effects, that, that's completely what it was for me. And, and yeah. since it was a horror movie, the Russian dialect is very abrasive, can be very abrasive. And so, uh, you know, sitting on set and not having the subtitles for myself, um, mm-hmm. I was able to sort of really hyper-focus on what the audience was going to hear and how they were going to hear it. Um, it was That's awesome. It was great, man. And so when you mentioned, I only brought that up because when you mentioned the, you know, dialogue being like a mu- musical piece or sound design, I completely wholeheartedly agree. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one thing um, that I do with directors when we shot list the movie is most of the feature films I've done have been written by the director. I've been lucky with that. Um, uh, I mean, almost all of them, if not all of them, um, I guess, yeah, either they, it's their script or they've, they've done a draft of the script. And what we do is when we shot list each scene, I make us read it to each other. So we'll, if there's multiple characters, we'll, we'll just each take on, you know, character one, character two, and you do three and four. And then we read it to each other just as a way of like making sure we're really understanding what we're breaking down. And in the case of the writer director, it's always, uh, it's always helpful to them to actually hear their words spoken. They end up making a lot of tweaks and changes when they hear these words spoken aloud, which is my goal. Mm-hmm. And it also just helps get it front of mind. You know, scripts are, they're such technical sort of um, outlines of a story that, and, you know, we shoot everything out of sequence when we make movies. It just helps to get it front of mind. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've heard these words. How, how do we want to shoot this scene? And, Ideally, we do a whole pass, a whole draft, like right away, maybe even before we have any locations, just to just to get a sense of the rhythm. And then when we actually location scout, we've got that draft in hand and we can quickly say, hey, this that concept we talked about translates well to this space or mm. well, look at this incredible space. That idea actually doesn't work. We'll we'll go back and we'll do another draft and stuff like that. That's interesting. That's super cool, actually. Yeah, because what's difficult about making films is that, you know, you sort of hit a point after, as the writer or even as the director and you're in prep stage, you you sort of hit a point where it becomes, you know, uh, the the craft of it, 
where you know you're sort of battling locations and you're battling all these different resources and whether or not you're getting the money or the day has to be shorter or this so then it sort of becomes this game of almost like a struggle of of trying to keep it at that level and of course yeah. you're you're inspired by what comes your way and you can pivot if, the great filmmakers know how to pivot when they are challenged by stuff but yeah you know it, it's interesting like you i i've said this I just finished a, a short film in which we changed the entire structure because I did it myself and who gives a fuck. And yeah. it was during COVID. And so we shot some scenes and then I went into the edit room and I edited scenes and then I went and I shot some scenes. And so it was like this weird process of me shooting, cutting, shooting, cutting, shooting, cutting, insert, insert, shooting, cutting. And the movie was better for it because I was cooking and making at the same time. And it helped yeah. that the location was like in my fucking garage. So I logistically didn't have to deal with all that. But you you almost wish that, you know, larger movies couldn't be done that way too, you know? Yeah, what's why when, when in the prep stage, when, especially when we're shot listing and just talking about what we want the movie to be, you never really have that level of freedom ever again. It, it's, yeah. it, it gets less and less as you really start to enter into the logistics of making something. Yeah. And um, so we make a plan and the plan helps you kind of relax. And really the, I find the best thing about making a plan with the director is the shorthand you develop mm -hmm. so that on the day, sometimes, you know, locations fall through for, because of weather or because of who knows what the, the, the homeowner will pull out or, <laughs> yeah. or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the more of a shorthand I have with the director, the more we understand really what the true feeling of, of the scene is, is supposed to be. And then it becomes kind of self-evident what, what move to make. And, you know, I always try and ask the director, you know, you know, in a word or in a phrase to try and encapsulate what the movie is about because it helps in those decisions. Like for example, hmm. uh, I did a, a show for the writer director, Julio Torres, that is sort of on pause now because of the strike that the, the post-production's on pause, but it, it's a show called Phantasmas that hopefully will come out next year. And, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, can you encapsulate what this is about? And essentially his, his answer was, it's about, uh, ghosts and ghostliness <laughs> and he had a few more things to say but basically was like when, when there's a decision to make which decision is evokes more of a, a ghostliness yeah and that was super helpful ba basically and he he loves um you know edgy kind of avant-garde imagery so so that helped like you know he loved taking risks and so we could do this kind of outlandish unusual looking stuff and then he get really excited and that that's really helpful just to have a very simple sort of like a dumb person's guide to what this movie is about because when you've been you know like if you've been on your feet for 14 hours and you have two more to go and you're just getting into a critical scene you know sometimes your brain just freezes and yeah of course <laughs> just just sort of like the the concepts guides you and yeah. you don't have to you know be so brilliant when, when you're when you're like about to pass out but you can't <laughs> what's what's wild is that <clears throat> you're 100 percent right and 
as a director, as I'm putting something together, even if it's in the early stages of storytelling, um, trying to figure out what that <laughs> what that one line is, or what that that simple description is, is often the the scariest thing <laughs> when you're putting it yeah. together because you're just like, what what distills this and. and- and it can change too, you know, yeah. you can start in one place and then the movie sometimes tells you, eh, it's not quite that. It's a little, a little bit left of that. Yeah. And, and ultimately what I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to chase whatever spark or whatever, like whatever light bulb flicker excitement that I had when I first had the idea or, or if I read a script and I looked at it and something like really excited me internally and you're just trying to keep that, that, energy that 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 shivering in your chest alive through as much of the process as possible and i you know i would hope that whatever my slow whatever the line is for my project would just sort of reverberate that light bulb a little bit in my chest because it seems like that's always the hardest part especially when you're doing stuff over a long run is is trying to keep that lighthouse of excitement going you know what i mean yeah I think probably if people have come out, have agreed to do it, I speak for myself. If I've said yes to a project and we've agreed to spend three or four months really giving everything I have to it, then, you know, it's already the hardest part is, is sort of done in a way in the sense that I've really got to believe that I've got to believe in the project to go, to go do that. Mm-hmm. And so you know, and, and for my part, most of the time, um, you know, once, once I become a believer, my job is to go find the best, you know, bespoke crew, you know, a team of people to come, to come along for the ride. And, and, uh, it's a bit, you re- you really have to get people on board who are, who, are, who really want to be there and yeah. who, who love, who love to work and who love movies. And it's not just a job um, on, on something longer, especially, you know, if it's a shorter project or, or a commercial or, you know, you can, you can skate with people who are a little more mercenary, but ideally every, every person who's there is, is passionate and just really wants to be there. And, um, but yeah, and that's a big part of my job is, is making sure the people, I'm directly responsible for are, are in that vein. And, and, and a lot of the time um, directors and producers will ask me about uh, other people who, I, who I don't, I'm not directly responsible for, like the production designer sure. or the assistant director. Sure. Or now that I've been doing this a while, um, I have a lot of friends who I love working with and who have that the work ethic and, and the passion to sustain what is very often a slog, you know, the slog yeah, yeah. of feature filmmaking or narrative filmmaking is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's hard sometimes the, the days are long and you, you need a lot of stamina to get through. And then, you know, we all pull each other up and we get through hard, scary days. And then it's really satisfying when you, when you, you know, make a day that seemed really tough or, you know, you, you get a great performance and you complete a scene, you know, before, before the sun disappears or before the sun comes up <laughs> yeah. during a night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, those are, those are amazing moments. And I think that the misconception with a lot of folks is that the bigger the budget is, the, the less of a slog it is. But I, I think it's the opposite. I think the, the larger the budget, 
and the more days and the more intensity and the more sort of like bureaucratic stuff that you get, it's, it's a different type of slog as opposed to being on a smaller budget film or an indie film and really just trying to get through your day and, and work with the tools that you have at your disposal. Um, it's interesting, you know, stam- yeah. stamina is fascinating. And I think no matter what, if you're in this business, you have to have stamina no matter what. I, I don't think they're, unless yeah. you're like a day play commercial guy and you show up and you set up a light and then you go eat some brisket at craft services for about two hours. I think yeah. that's the, I think that's the only place that you can sort of phone it in. I think everywhere else at, at, at some point we, in time, you know, even on commercials, I got my start in commercials as an intern at a commercial company. And I met Harris Savitas as an IC mm-hmm. on commercials. I did lots and lots of commercials as a camera assistant. And then that's how I got started shooting. And the fact is you got to show up there too. It's, it's a different, it's a different animal. It's a little bit more of a sprint. And a lot of the things we're responsible for on features are sort of decided for you on commercials. Like, you know, there's a preliminary, you know, the, the ad agency will do storyboards that then the director will revise. But, um, yeah. you, you know, you, you really have to bring it on a commercial too. You can't take any of these things for granted. It's, they're really counting on you to make sure that, you know, I'll, I'll say this, like ad agencies sometimes work years on these campaigns. And then the, my first day is on the tech scout. And even if, you know, maybe it's like a hyper commercial product, um, you know, I, have, I really try and honor the fact that these people are here. They're, yes. they're paying all of our rents or mortgages this month, and they're really counting on us to not screw this up. And, and sometimes they're really fun and, you know, glamorous even, or maybe it's like a, a fashion commercial or something like that. But, but even if it's not... Yeah, it's like, it sort of feels, it's a different kind of pressure to like four months, uh, you know, day in, day out. But yeah, it's, you always have to show up. You never know who's watching. And um, it's very true. You know, the moment you, the moment you sort of relent or think like, I don't have to worry about this is the moment one of the umpteen, you know, mistakes that could happen in a day happen. <laughs> it's, uh, that, it's painful no matter what it is. If, if it's like something goes dreadfully wrong. And, and, and sometimes that just happens because it's your turn and it, not for any lack of preparation or attitude. I mean, it can just, you know, I'm always trying to teach film students or, or young people who are interested in getting into this, that, you know, no matter what we do, mistakes will happen. And it's the only way we really truly learn. And so it's all about sort of your composure and your attitude and your follow through when there is a mistake. And, and also I would say like the willingness to be accountable and um, you know, like I've made many, mistakes as one does but you know like shooting a scene and there's like a tape mark in frame for example uh-huh. or you know at the end of the day i'm responsible to look at the frame and make sure like we didn't leave any marks on the floor and um you know it's that kind of thing yeah happens sometimes and certainly by no you know no one intends it to happen and, and you have to move fast and there's a million examples of like water bottles left in frame and big projects that we've all read about and you know people online are very happy to point out but you know we do the best we can while we're rushing sure as Harry used to say you need to work 
like the cops are chasing you. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's time to take a moment, time to take a break, support the men and women that make this show possible. I'm talking about the sponsors. And many of you are here because you're cinematographers. Many of you are here. Uh, and a lot of the questions that, that many of you young cinematographers have are like, what do you have for equipment? What do you use for gear? Well, let's talk about it. Um, first up, Fujifilm. I love Fujifilm. I've been using Fujifilm for over a year now. Fujifilm, uh, not only do they make amazing cameras, um, but they also support filmmakers. And support filmmakers, unlike any other company out there, uh, if you guys haven't heard the uh, Fujifilm Creator Series stuff that we have on the podcast. Um, they're great episodes of all of the filmmakers. The Fujifilm has put me in touch with the filmmakers that they sponsor their projects for. Um, and so we get to meet new young talent um, that are making exciting pieces and films that are going to be out in film festivals. I, I think there's a few of them that are going to be in Film Quest with me, believe it or not. Um, so there's lots of really great stuff from Fujifilm on our podcast, but also, um, go check out Fujifilm's website. There are links in the description of today's episode. They have some amazing new cameras coming out. They have the X-T5, which looks phenomenal. What is this? A 40.2 megapixel, 15 frames per second, mechanical shutter, seven stops of internal body emulate image stabilization they're really big on that image stabilization stuff um oh wow 180,000 max shutter speed holy shit and this camera's not that bad man 1600 bucks 1700 bucks for this rig what an amazing still camera this is check it out the x t5 on fujifilm's website um we gene and i are big fans of the gfx 100s uh, i know they have a new one out or coming out i don't know if i'm allowed to say anything yet has it been released yet i don't know but uh check out their cameras man i can't say enough great things about them and what i love about fujifilm whether i'm i'm shooting stills or if i'm shooting motion i love their color profiles 100 um and their super intelligent autofocus i'm a huge fan of that um and i love 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 the ability um, to shoot uh, really great low light stuff. Because oftentimes we are on film sets and we're trying to shoot photographs uh, on sets that are lit for video, which is completely different, right? For video, generally, whenever you're shooting video, you're usually shooting at like 800 ASA and you're usually shooting at a shutter speed of 48 frames per second. And when you're shooting stills, it's completely different. It's completely different. And so uh, you don't really understand, especially clients don't really understand how much more light is needed to shoot a clear crystal photograph, especially if it's being used for marketing. Um, And that's what drew both me and Gina to Fujifilm, uh, was that we were able to take a camera like the GFX 100S and a camera body like that and then combine it with a lens adapter and be able to put not only really beautiful Fujifilm lenses on it, but also a lot of our vintage lenses and lenses that don't exist in the marketplace anymore onto that camera and sort of transform that camera into something truly special. So uh, if you're in the market for a new camera, I can't say enough really great things about Fujifilm. And if you're 
out there because uh, you want brand loyalty and you want to find a brand that is going to be loyal to you as an artist out of all of the camera companies. Fujifilm has been the one that's been there the most for art. So check them out. There's a link in the description of this episode. Also supporting the show are friends over at Puget Systems, another company that supports artists, but also the place to go if you're going to build yourself a new edit machine, if you're going to build yourself a new sound computer, if you're going to build yourself a new gaming machine, buy a PC. Why buy a PC? They're more affordable, first off. Second, they're upgradable. You're never going to be like put in a corner. You're not going to have to buy a motherboard that literally has uh, bits and parts welded to it that will become outdated and that you'll have to throw the whole damn thing out with. You can build a machine custom built to work like a workhorse, a strong workhorse for why you need it. Go to PugetSystems.com and you can pick out a baseline package based on the software you're going to use with this machine. Um, and here's what's great about Puget. They don't manufacture hardware. These guys benchmark test. They try out all the new gear that is out in the marketplace. They uh, go through the process of testing the new um, software updates and upgrades. They know the right combination of materials to put together to make it work even better than you could. And what's great about them is that it's always shifting. This landscape is always changing with every new software update. Uh, pieces of hardware are rendered useless. These guys keep track of most of it, if not all of it. So go to PugetSystems.com, build yourself a PC, or have them build you a PC. Their customer support, I've never had customer support like these, these folks. These are real people that answer the phone. These are real people that know you by name when you're, when you're uh, buying materials from them, 100%. I can't say enough great things. So if you're going to build a computer, go to PugetSystems.com right now. The links are in the description of today's episode. Um, also supporting the show, our friends over at Boca Rentals, the place that I go to here in Los Angeles when I'm renting lenses, cameras, camera support equipment. Uh, what I love about Boca is that they're a company that is 100% focused on the next generation of storytellers. They understand the power in supporting us, the young filmmakers, and uh, really supporting us. I mean, really supporting us. Um, and if you head on over to Boca Rentals, check out their inventory. It's insane. All those lenses you've always wanted to work with. Um, and just go down and talk to them. Have you ever signed up uh, with a rental house? I, I, so many of you are afraid to do it. It blows my mind. And I know that there are insurance questions. There are all these different issues that are in play. But man, if you make a great relationship with your local rental house and if they know you by name, the stuff that you can get, the collaborations that you can put together, the advices you can get, the training that you can get, I can't say enough great stuff. And I know a lot of you aren't out here in Los Angeles. Uh, if you're in Las Vegas, there's a Boca there. There's a Boca here in LA. But go find your local rental company, period, wherever it is that you are. And some places, you might be out in the sticks and there might be a place that just sort of rents AV gear and some cameras and they don't actually have what it is that you need. You'll be surprised to know that many of these rental companies sub-rent from companies out here in LA. So you can actually ask your local rental company, hey, do you sub-rent from Boca Rentals? You know what I mean? Look into that too. BocaRentals.com, Boca Rentals on Instagram. Check them out. Great company. Love those guys. Um, let's see. I think, oh, also supporting the show. I'm going to give you guys an early read. Jumping back on as a sponsor here on the podcast. I'm excited. 
Uh, we're getting it all worked out right now. Black Magic is back. Black Magic is back. Uh, they just sent me a uh, Resolve micro panel, one of the control surfaces to use with Resolve. I have been deep into using Resolve for color grading. I've also been toying with Resolve for editing. Um, it is an incredibly powerful program. The tracking alone in the power windows when you're dealing with color grading is amazing. It's amazing. Like the, uh, what do they call it? The generative lighting that they're doing? There's a, there's a term for it, but you can actually relight sequences um, in Resolve. Like, and the uh, ability to do uh, like skin repair and blemish removal and tracking skin repair and tracking blemish removal. I mean, I've, I've spent hours and hours <laughs> doing post-production on B. Miller videos and other works for Gina. And when you're dealing with fashion or pop culture, uh, cosmetics is a big part of it. And so having the ability to quickly track and remove blemishes and fix blemishes and actually power window and, and, and drive the audience's eyes to where they need to be it's amazing. I feel as excited about Resolve as I used to feel with Photoshop. It's pretty crazy stuff, man. I loved the program. I love Blackmagic for it. Blackmagic also have great cameras. Uh, I've been using their uh, 6K Pro for quite some time. Um, and I've shot inserts and cutaways with that. Uh, bits and pieces of uh, Come Home were shot with my Blackmagic camera when I did a lot of my inserts. And I shot that movie with three different cameras. I shot that with the Black Magic. I shot that with the Fujifilm uh, HX, H2S. I always fuck up that number. And I also shot um, with the Airy uh, Mini LF. Now, as you can see, these are all tools. I'm not loyal to any specific brands. I appreciate these brands. I will support these brands because they support us and they make great quality stuff. But we're in a marketplace where you can have as many tools, you can work with as many tools as possible to make your project work for you. That's why um, you may want to get your hands on a great camera to have in your kit. And like I said, I love the Fujifilm cameras to have in my kit. I also have a Blackmagic camera to have in my kit. They're affordable to have bits and pieces. And I love each of those cameras for different reasons. Okay. So uh, definitely check them out. More importantly, I, what I love about Blackmagic and what I'm going to be promoting them for on this show is Resolve and their post-production workflow. It's crazy. And they're really, they're really forcing Adobe to try to catch up, man. They really are. So pumped to have you back at the show. Uh, thank you for your support. And thank you guys for listening. Finally, uh, if you guys are new to the show, and you haven't done so already, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've curated episodes based upon subject material. So if you just want to listen to all of the cinematographer episodes, they're all up there, man. Those are some of our heavy hitters on the show. Go listen. Check them out. All right, inlovewiththeprocess.com. Back to the show. I mean, I noticed when I was doing the research on your history that you you uh, credit 
Harris as being uh, an apprentice or being sort of a, a mentor of yours, correctly? It, like, how, uh, how many years did you work with him? Um, let's see. I met him. I met him on a on a TV commercial in LA. I was I wasn't living in LA, but I used to go out there when someone was willing to hire me. Sure. Let's see. I worked as an AC for him for about two or three years, like as a film loader, second AC type of person. But we we got along, and then he hired me to work on James Gray's movie The Yards. That was in oh yeah, it came out in, it came out in two thousand. I think it was shot in ninety eight. Yep. Um, I worked with them. At, uh, let's see. So that was, and I, I quit assisting in 2003. So it was about five years that I on and off worked for Harris um, in different capacities. And then he, once I started shooting, we stayed really good friends. Um, so I, I, I quit assisting in 03. And then it was about 2009 that he introduced me to Noah Baumbach who was looking for someone to shoot Francis Ha. So Noah had, uh, Noah had just done two movies, uh, Margot at the Wedding and Greenberg with yeah. Harris Savitas. Yeah. Asked him to do Francis Ha. Harris was in his prime and not available for the, you know, approximately one pe- period of one year <laughs> over which Noah and Greta wanted to shoot Francis. And he said, you know, I, I can't really do it, but you need to meet Sam um, because he knew it was kind of a smaller scale budgetarily. And he wanted to shoot on this weird consumer digital camera, which Harris knew I owned and I was shooting all kinds of music videos with this camera. Uh-huh. And so he introduced me to Noah and the three of us shot a test together of Greta in Noah's apartment. Um, just her walking around rooms and trying things. And then we made a 35 millimeter print out of that test at the time that was still most movies, movie houses showed mm-hmm. new movies mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and we were off. And then by the time Noah saw the test, he felt confident, you know, having me go do it, but it's really, it just would not, uh, you know, my Francis Ha, Lady Bird, that just stuff just wouldn't have happened without Harris, you know, introducing me to Noah. It's interesting, man. It's great. I mean, that's kind of how the business works, right? You like you 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 try to work for folks. You try to work the the best you can, and and make sure that you know you're showing up and that you're honest and that you're putting your heart into it. And then it, it's relationships. And this business is for a positive or for a negative. It is just about who you know, and it's relationships and being suggested and and being put into places because. Anytime anybody starts a project, like if I start a project, it feels like the most important thing in the fucking world. <laughs> and the, the last thing you want to do is just, you know, pick up the phone book and sort of flip through and go, all right, I need a cinematographer. <laughs> like you, it's all suggestions and it's all who, like yeah. who's worked with who. And, you it know, almost, sometimes it's like a crime syndicate almost. Like some people <laughs> liken it to the military. I wouldn't say that. I would say, uh, you know, I would say it's more like a consortium of thieves and. <laughs> You really like when, when someone gets suggested, what we all do is call around and see who this person has worked with for and, and what they're like. And and the best way you can do it is to just sort of maybe look them up and without getting, you know, any reference someone gives you is likely going to be someone who loves them. But maybe, you know, you can get people who they don't, they haven't necessarily, given to you um you know if, if there's say like a gaffer 
um, who I'm thinking of working with, I can see like, oh, you know, my friend, this DP has worked with them. Let me call them. Yep. And that's just a part of being a cinematographer is being, there's a code that you need to get back to someone and you need to get back to them as quickly as you possibly can with yay or nay. Like, is this, was this person okay? Did you like them? Are they dependable? Because it's, and, and then, you know, those conversations, I mean, it, it all happens so quickly. And then the next thing you know, you sort of, you, you, you've like offered a job to someone you hope will be, you know, your new best friend for, for four or five months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, it's, especially when you're talking about on that, because I think there's, there's two different conversations here. There's one conversation where, you, you know, if you're a director or you're a creator and you're out there looking for a cinematographer, that in itself is difficult, but at least when you're looking for a cinematographer, there is the prior work that you're also looking for or looking yeah. at first. Although the, I have a big argument that that a lot of younger cinematographers that just cut together pretty images to to, to music really doesn't show show me what they can fucking do as far as narrative is concerned, or you know putting a scene together or a continuity of scenes and all that kind of stuff. But I think when you're hunting for uh, a gaffer or a key grip or someone that is working as one of your team, you really, th- th- it's not like they have a reel <laughs> that showcases, you know, yeah. whether or not they were able to pull it together when the director decided to flop sides <laughs> and, you know, you had to relight a whole sequence, you know, like you want to know how yeah. these people work under stress, you know? Definitely. And, and it's really helpful to know if someone's a good storyteller or not. Like if, are they a good script reader? Are they, do they have a sense of character? Are they going to be an ally to you when you're shooting out of sequence and maybe there's a narrative element that I've overlooked, which happens to all of us. Um, you know, the best, the best collaborators are passionate about, about filmmaking and really have a good story sense. That I think is the most important thing I look for Hmm. if that's if someone's an artist and can really contribute like like to what you said the time crunch is is important but also very often especially nowadays because schedules only get cut more and more the further we the more time goes by you know if someone is going to jump ahead and light a set and if it's anything having to do with tv very often a set has to be lit and i won't see it until you know maybe right before maybe right before we we shoot it so that that does come up often so is this person do they have taste can they right can they kind of anticipate what's going on narratively and you know read the tea leaves with the director and and get a sense of how how risky they want to be or, you know, how do they respond to, you know, low light and silhouette or do they just hate that and always want to see the eyes and then how, yeah, how we can make something tasteful that really kind of fits into the scheme of the whole thing. Yeah. You bring up an interesting, cause there's a lot of technicians that listen to the show and I've worked with quite a few gaffers in my time and there are different types of gaffers. Right. And, and I think, uh, I've worked with the dudes that are just very sort of technically based, and I've worked with with guys that don't even read the script, <laughs> don't even have a connection to the story whatsoever. And there is a power, uh, and there is something powerful to having a lighting technician that isn't just like, hey, let me 
let's figure out the uh, the the units that we're going to put on the truck and let's figure out how we're going to do this having a technician that actually is involved with the story has uh, an idea of the emotion that's in these sequences especially if you're going to send them ahead of you to light those bits for you correct oh yeah I, for me it's absolutely critical um there's a gaffer i work with who i love he's based in la jerry mundy uh-huh. who did uh ladybird and mayday together and and he's just brilliant at he's a great script reader he can read a script once and really have it in his head and he's just it's great when you have someone like that um who can really talk with the AD and the production manager and the producer and really keep all the elements of the schedule in their head, but keep that separate from the narrative and creative side. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of, of doing this job is making sure you are managing things properly and that you have everything on the truck that you need and you're keeping track of where the sun is throughout the day and, you know, manpower, you know, staffing is probably the word we should use now, um, that you have the right, the right amount of team members and that you're kind of, you know, painting within the lines of, of the budget and the schedule, because if you go grossly over that benefits, no one, and it takes quality right off of the screen. So, you know, um, there's a great moment where we were filming Mayday where, you know, we were filming uh, two characters saying goodbye. They were never going to see each other again. And Jerry pulled me aside and we decided we really wanted to play it in one shot. It was a, a one-er. And he pulled me aside and he was like, remember, this is the last time they're seeing each other. You definitely, you don't want to go in. <laughs> and we definitely didn't, but I love that he pointed it out. He was like, just remember. You keep, and the lighting was done. You know, we, 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 we were lit. We were, we were rolling. We were, you know, about halfway through the takes we were going to do, but he knew as soon as we were done, we were going to quickly like break for lunch and move on to something else. And, and, you know, that's why I love him. It's, I had to sit and think, and I was still confident that we were doing the right thing, but, you know, I just love people who, pay attention. Um, Sean Goller was the DIT on Lady Bird and Mayday. Um, right, right there with him, like always asking questions about like, well, you know, 10 scenes from now, uh, you're going to need that prop that you can't really see becomes important. Do you, do you want it more in frame for that reason? Yeah. Hey, that's a great idea. You know, stuff like that. I love that, man. And I think that there's this, I think it, when I talk to younger filmmakers, it's we're always sort of overcoming what the the tales and the the myths of you know directors and cinematographers are. Where you know the myth is that you know we have all the fucking answers, and when we we show up on set, we know exactly what's going to happen, and we know how it's going to happen, and we're basically controlling reality. That's the myth of it, and I find that. I love to have around me crew people and collaborators that just are in and they, they, they feel confident and they have the ability to come and, and speak their mind. I, I, I recently just worked with one of my favorite uh, sound mixers and I had a very similar situation where we're doing a sequence and we finished shooting and he just quietly came over to me and he said, dude, it, 
I'm listening to what's going on, and this didn't make sense to me. And how is it? How are you going to make this make sense? And even though yeah. I, even though I had an idea of how I was going to make it se- make sense, I just looked at him and I said, "It didn't come across to you." And he's like, "No, I'm not feeling that, man. You might want to have them say that line again. You might want to have them look around and do this thing again, and and, and fi- figure yeah. out how you can do it." And that's like invaluable because as the person that's running the fucking thing, oftentimes I'm so 100% hyper-focused on uh, what my insecurities are for that day. And I'm like pushing really hard to make sure that I'm pulling together what I think I'm going to fail at, that I'm missing how the audience is perceiving it. And and that's essentially yeah. what he was, was the audience for me at that moment. There's a great documentary by Chris Marker about Kurosawa. It's called AK, mm-hmm. where he is on set for, I think it's the filming of Kagamusha, the samurai drama. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. has portraits of all these different crew of people who've worked on many of his films. And the, the one I remember the clearest was his sound mixer who wore these beautiful, I think they were red leather gloves <laughs> as he was, you know, his hands were on the knobs on his mixer. And he was, he's smoking a cigarette out with a big, beautiful, like cigarette holder. And, you know, he just looked like, <laughs> you know, this grizzled old soul. I love it. And I think he'd worked on like 30 of the Kurosawa's movies and you just see him there listening to the levels and it's really beautiful. I love it, man. And you know, <laughs> you don't, you don't give enough credit to, to positions like that. You don't give enough credit to collaborators like that. And, and, you know, when I was a cinematographer for music videos for years, I, I used to get hired based on the work of the people that work for me, you know, and, and I would have people hire me and go like, your lighting is amazing. And this is what I want you to do. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, I didn't do that. I, I mean, I was a tastemaker for that sequence, but this, this gaffer and this yeah. key grip did that. And if you really like that shit, you should probably make sure that we can hire them with us because they're the ones that, that, open my mind to that. And I've, I've, yeah. I've had those collaborations, especially cause I was a young cinematographer. I was like 22, 23, very young uh-huh. and working with older gentlemen that were just kind and had the ability to just say like, look, I know you're excited about using this new fucking light, <laughs> but you know, let's, yeah. let's talk about, you know, how to shape that light and let's talk about, you know, what shadow does for that light. And I want to, once you work with an elite crew, like department heads, like a gaffer, especially, and you see the difference of someone who's, who's really great, then it starts to make sense. Like, Oh, it's the job. It's never easy. The job is just, it's just never going to be an easy thing, but it's becomes a lot easier when you have Someone who Gordon Willis used to say, it's very simple. You just hire people who are smarter than you. Yeah, it's very and, true. You know, I love that Gordon Willis, you know, definitely one of my favorite DPs and why one of the big reasons I wanted to become a cinematographer, considered one of the greats and humble enough to admit, oh, there's definitely people smarter than him. That's <laughs> who you should hire. And it's a great, it's a great rule of thumb. Um, and, and I remember... Uh, I think I was shooting one of my first sort of bigger commercials and um, I got to work with the great New York gaffer named John Regalis, um, who I've done, you know, a bunch of movies with in New York and is just a genius. Mm-hmm. And I remember 
I'd only worked with, uh, you know, smaller, like non-union music videos to that point with some people who are very passionate, but just not experienced and not right. you know, talented in that way. And I remember being, it was so eye-opening. Like, oh, um, all those years when I was in AC working for certain DPs, um, you know, it's like you really lean on a brilliant collaborator, like a gaffer. And in yeah. many cases, that's where the great ideas might be coming from for certain people. Um, yeah. But no matter who you are, no matter how brilliant a DP you are, you can really only get so far when the department heads who you're working with are, are limited. And especially if they don't have a good attitude, you want to be that yeah. someone who is, and this happens all the time with younger crews too, maybe, or I don't know for might feel entitled or just for whatever reason, don't want to be there. Um, it's, you know, as a DP, that's going to come up. There's no way around that sometimes. And so you learn, you know, part of the craft is learning how to work when that's happening to you and meeting people where they're at and that kind of thing. Yeah. But when you have someone who's meeting you where you are at and really passionate and excited to be there, even though they're exhausted and haven't seen their kids in a week, which hopefully will change at some point the way we work in film and especially in this country but yeah um people who despite that are excited to be there and just happy to be doing what they're doing it's really exciting and can only lead it will lead to exciting results on screen yeah yeah Ah, that's really cool man I, i agree with all that and you know, it, it's it, like I've talked a lot on the show about like, uh, you know, just dealing with, you know, past traumas. And I think there's a lot of crews that are bringing their traumas to projects, right? Because, they're, you know, we've heard stories of crews that are just abused and and dealing with, yeah. with uh, you know, some cinematographers that are just absolutely drama queens about stuff. And, and it, it's, it's it, when you finally can find... Uh, a team and and I, do you feel this way are you constantly trying to sort of combat whatever sort of traumas that has happened to a crew prior to this or are you finally at a point where you you found your team and you're just like these are the guys these are the guys are the women that I want to work with all the time no that's always an issue um the show that unfortunately even when producers are doing everything not not uh not in violation of any of the union contracts, you can still end up working a 16 hour day for four days in a row. And I I don't, I don't know every idiosyncrasy of the union contract, but the last show I did, um, we had producers that I liked a lot, but we were just, you know, really under the gun with schedule and we really had to push, push the hours a lot. And it was hard. And and there's some, you know, crew that I've worked with for years who had like it, it finally, you know, finally was difficult for them. And yeah, yeah. I'm always, you know, the the most important thing on set is that everyone's safe. Like nothing's as important as everyone getting home safely to their families or just if, if they live alone, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs to get home safe. Yeah. And nothing else as important as that. And Part of my job is to make sure everyone understands that's my priority. And if anything's amiss, they can find me directly or, you know, 
generally speaking, I have a great rapport with our first AD and I try and partner with them on this. And sometimes we're just all up against it. You know, the producers Mm -hmm. have their job to do. We have our job to do. And we're just trying to get something done. And this is always an issue. It's a big, it's a big issue, unfortunately. And it doesn't matter. Um, if it's someone younger or older, more experienced, less experienced, it's, um, it's become very important that the crew understands that no matter what, uh, they can count on me to make sure they're safe. And if it's, if it's, um, you know, given the freelance nature of what we do, you can't always work with the same people every time. And, you know, maybe I'm, traveling out of town or wh- whatever, Wh- whoever it is, that's my first order order of business is you can find me if you think something's off and I'll have your back. And you know, we all need to have each other's backs like that. And you can't, you can't take people for granted. Um, it's uh, you know, the, for whatever reason, we just, we work really long hours and it's yeah. just, um, it's mostly accepted, and obviously, there's a big strike happening while we talk while about we, this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's you know, actors and the writers. My union's not on strike, which is why I feel okay having this conversation. But uh, you know, it's it's an issue, and and um, yeah, I think the I think the important thing is people need to feel safe, and and then if there are certain people who just don't feel comfortable going on a certain project for whatever reason, um, because they think it's going to be too many hours or they just need to stay close to home or maybe they need to do commercials for a little while. Sure. Then um, there's, there's most of the people I love to work with, you know, they'll be very direct about that. And then of course I understand. And, you know, it's just always a process to find the right group for the the film you're doing at, at the moment. Well, and I'm friends with a lot of keys. And so I think that when you're younger, the fear was always with these guys. Um, If I say no now, (laughs) so if I say no to anything right now, then someone else is going to get that gig. And then they're going to form a relationship that I have with the, with the cinematographer. And then uh, I might not get that call again. And I think when a lot of, when these guys were a lot younger, they would feel that pressure. Like I have to say yes all the time. I have to, put myself into these situations because I got to keep this relationship strong. Um, And I think with time and age, they start to realize like, it's not, if I truly have a good bond with somebody, um, you know, that I'll always get the call, even if I'm not available to get the call. But I think with a lot of those guys, it took them a few years to, to sort of wrap their heads around that. And then, then they're making healthy decisions, not decisions just based on fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard being working freelance is it's hard. It's scary sometimes. And even um, getting the call for a job can be traumatic. Like the idea that something is maybe, you know, a really great offer that's going to take you away from home for months and months can be scary. Uh, It's always scary to get (laughs) pretty much any long-term call, especially if it's out of town can be a little startling. And then, you know, um, you settle down, read the script, have a conversation, and then it, it sort of becomes self-evident if it's something to, to do or not. 
and uh, and then yeah, and then we just do the best we possibly can to find collaborators who are who are going to come and want to you know live in the circus for for a few months. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then when you are working, right? So you're out there and you're you're in the middle of it and you're doing those sixteen hour days and you're you're happy with what it is that you're doing, but you sort of hit a point where it's like, okay, I need a break. How long is it for you when, how long not working do you go crazy? <laughs> That's the question, you know? I think it depends. Um, before the strike, I basically I work back to back on three different things, two feature films and a TV show. And I maybe had a couple of weeks off in between just to, you know, pull things together, the holidays and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I guess it depends. It depends if, it, if it's you're putting a bunch of things together in a row uh, like I did. I, you know, I, I had been hoping to have a little time off and then we all and not we all, but, you know, but there's sort of this enforced time off. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> no, I think um, it just depends. I mean, generally you know, it takes about two weeks usually to recover from, from a movie and then maybe another two weeks to sort of come back to yourself. Yeah. And then, yeah, after, after a month, I'm usually ready to, to move on to something else. I would say. What else? So I, I got this advice years ago and it was actually good advice. And sometimes I fall through with it. Sometimes I don't, but uh, I was told that I need to have, um, especially as a director, because there seems to be a hell of a lot more time in between projects than if you're a cinematographer, that I need to have something else that made me happy in my life. Like, I need to have a hobby. I need to have something else that I did besides uh, yeah. making movies. Uh, do you have something that you do besides? Yeah, I I have a an art studio in, in New York, which I've had just for the last few years. And it's... Um, I go there every day that I'm not shooting or have something that I need to deal with. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, it's probably a little adjacent to my job as a DP, but I do, uh, still photography there and I have a printer there. And I would say what's different is, um, the stuff I do is sort of more on the abstract side. Um, and I can, I can sort of do it all, myself i can yeah. take the photo i can print it i can put it on a wall i'm working on a book um and and then sometimes i just go there and you know um i'll write i'll you know there's ideas i have to you know like make installations things like that um just like making art basically that's that's it's very similar but it's outside of the uh, extremely collaborative yeah. side of filmmaking where, you know, for a feature film to get off the ground and happen, you know, it just involves even for something on the smaller side, you know, yeah, there, so there's a big group of people yeah. and all these stars need to align in a certain way. And um, yeah, what I, what I do is, you know, in my, studio is like fewer stars have to align basically <laughs> would be one way to put it. <laughs> and, and then, yeah. And then, you know, it's, I don't know if it, I just try and, uh, you know, exercise and go for walks and I don't I know that's, that that's really a hobby, but I think. No, but the, it's, it's important. All that's important. The, the yeah, the, trying to, 
you know, keep relatively in shape and get sleep. And I love to cook too. That's uh, I, I try and really quickly get into cooking when, um, when I'm not shooting. And then when I am shooting, I try and cook a lot on the weekends and maybe do like kind of meal prep for the week, but that, yeah. that can devolve when, you know, yeah, when, yeah. When, when there's no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> when your life gets out of control. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm with, I'm right there with you, man. I love cooking and cooking for me is the, I do too much of it. My cholesterol is probably telling me that I do too much of it, but <laughs> Uh, I do it because I get the same sort of satisfaction that I would doing a movie just on a condensed timeline. So like the ability to sort of create an experience and I love cooking for other people. So like to create an experience and to, to get the rewards for, you know, the skill of playing with their senses and the sense of smell and texture and taste. And it's, it's the same kind of thing for me. And I, I find it to be so relaxing. And I find that I'm, I'm the only person I have to rely on for that. I'm the only person I need to pull together to do that. Um, and it, you know, it really keeps me sane, especially from a directorial standpoint and trying to get movies off the fucking ground and how insane and like bipolar and, and vicious the industry can be as far as getting something together. I find that having a hobby like that or, or, or riding my bike every morning, just something that reminds me that, you know, what I think is the most important thing in the world, and oftentimes the thing that's well beyond my control isn't. And it's 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 almost better for me to be in a mindset where I'm like, that's secondary to the fact that I create meals for myself, that I, you know, go for rides for myself, that I try to keep my mind in place, that I'm good to my partner. Like that that to me, I in my older age is now, you know, I'm 45 this year. At this point, I'm like, that's more important than, than making movies is to me. And, and it doesn't, I'm not trying to say that making movies isn't the most important thing in my world, but you know, I've been trying to wrap my brain around the, the normal shit and, and the stuff that I have control over and to make that more front and center, you know? Yeah. And stuff like cooking is nice because just the, the act of, looking something up and I use the New York times, uh, cooking app, which I love cause you can, it has thousands of recipes and yeah, yeah, yeah. it's easy to access. And then you go to the store and you pick out the ingredients and then maybe you adjust a little bit if they don't have quite what you're looking for. And then you come home and generally I look at the recipes that take 30 minutes or less. Cause I'm more apt to <laughs> keep it going. Like keep, <laughs> keep cooking and you know in a couple of hours it's done and um most of the time it turns out how you want and it's just so immediate and satisfying and then you you know my life really changed a couple of years ago when i got a dishwasher and I, <laughs> in um, new york that's a big thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. Changed everything. but um yeah it's nice and especially if you have friends over and um, it's, it's a progressive hobby. I, I live very close to Chinatown, which is a really fun place to go and buy fish. Yes. Kind of, you just kind of look and see, well, what looks good? And, and then I can look up while I'm standing there, a recipe for, you know, red snapper and, and then see, uh, well, if I can find these few vegetables that'll work. <laughs> I remember taking a director, um, her name was Coleman Huff. She wrote a screenplay for um, Steven Soderbergh. And, and I, 
I had shot a film for her, a short film, and we were walking through Chinatown and she wasn't a big cooking person at the time. And, and, um, <laughs> I was trying to give her a pep talk. Like, you know, you could just buy, you could have any of these people. We were in Chinatown and, um, like you can have any of these people make a fillet and then you literally just put olive oil in your pan and throw it in. And when it looks done, you just put some salt and pepper on it. And it's just it's <laughs> so much easier than you might think. Yeah. And, um, it was a, she was like, that just doesn't sound simple to me. It was a great conversation <laughs> with a lot of fun in your film. And it sort of segued into like, yeah, it's just like, we can shoot your movie in the same way. We can, we can take a very straightforward approach. And uh, anyways, um, no, it's, it's fun. That's I, valid. That's completely valid. Yeah. That's valid, <laughs> man. Like I, I, my cinematographer that I use frequently, him and I love to, like we're weekend smokers. So like we love to smoke briskets and ribs and we'll get together. And uh, even our gaffer that we use all the time, who's now a really great cinematographer, we'll all get together and we'll do a weekend of just like barbecue and smoking and, and just work together on something else that we love so much. And it's completely separate from our job. It's completely different than what we do to That's create really art. Nice to have that. Yeah, I love it, man. It makes and and then we have something else to talk about. And what's hysterical is that now when we go and we meet, or if we meet a producer, or if we're in a position where we're trying to pitch something, inevitably the conversation goes from how much we like Kurosawa to like, oh yeah, yeah. If you're gonna do beef short ribs, <laughs> and yeah, it, you know, and it's it's what it feels so good because when you're in the depths of hell with a project, you can just yeah. sort of step away and go like. This weekend we should smoke something. What do you think? You know what I mean? Must have that continuity with something else. Even just a plan to see friends and go out for dinner, and then no, let's try let's try over here. Um, I have a director friend who one thing we love to do is go to see um, movies at a, at a repertory house like the Metrograph or Film Forum, and if cool, it happens cool. to be a film from a different country we'll try and go to a restaurant from the same country. So we, we saw a Thai movie once and we went to a Thai restaurant in my, in my neighborhood. Another time we saw an Italian movie, we went to an Italian restaurant and it's super fun. And it really makes for a great conversation about whatever it is you just saw. I love that, dude. I love that. Cause you feel like you're living in the moment. You feel like you're, you're extending out. You know, I, I, my girlfriend, she had never seen, because she's, she's a little younger than me, she had never seen Ghostbusters. And uh -huh. I was like, okay, you, got, you, you have to watch Ghostbusters. But I know that Ghostbusters to someone today is much different than Ghostbusters would be to someone in the 80s. So let's spend the afternoon before we watch Ghostbusters, and I'm going to play all the music from that, <laughs> from that time period. Let's watch a, a couple commercials from that time period. Let's eat some food that is inspired by that stuff and then watch Ghostbusters because <laughs> I was yeah. trying really hard to get her into the mindset, you know, and I think she liked the movie more. She claims she does. She also likes to placate me. So who knows? But yeah, yeah man. Yeah. That's really fun. Yeah. It's still, I mean, movies are really a part of popular culture and obviously, but um, my father was a violinist. I grew up, you know, in a house with, him practicing violin and he played for the Boston symphony and the Boston pops. And he played a lot with, Oh wow. With John Williams, um, you know, Spielberg's composer. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 
but he would always say, you know, amongst us musicians, when we do movie work, it's like light work was how he would describe it. He was, he was like, not to be insulting, but like compared to playing, mm-hmm. you know, like a Brahms symphony or, you know, Mahler going to do a score for a movie. Like it's kind of light. We, we call it light work. And <laughs> I always thought like, well, that, you know, that keeps my ego in check if I feel very self-serious about, you know, making a movie. And, you know, he played on the soundtrack for, like, Schindler's List. Like, even that <laughs> is late work, you know. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense, right? I mean, you're not really performing live. I, I mean, to a certain extent, you're performing for the recording, but you're not, you know, you're not in front of an audience. Yeah, I think he meant just scores, ten, you know, the thing that, anyways, his his peers and him found most difficult was playing like contemporary contemporary classical kind mm. of avant-garde scores were really difficult mm. and with contemporary movie scores not so much yeah it's true they're kind of on the nose <laughs> i need the audience to feel sad here okay all right we yeah. got you we got you <laughs> just pull i'll pull this bow over the string in a certain way and you're gonna feel sad no matter what dial it in <laughs> <laughs> oh man um well Sam, this is great, man. How how are you on time? Are you okay? I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Well, what I'd love to do, Sam, because we started to talk about food stuff. If you if you could stick around, we'll wrap up this episode. And I just want to do a segment, and I'll tell you about it after we record, and if you're interested. Oh, um, sure. And I might just mention this new movie, yes, Rebecca please. Miller's movie, that's going to come out October 6th. Yes, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the pro like, how, how did this movie come together for you? Um, well, I'd done one movie before with the director, Rebecca Miller called Maggie's plan that Greta Gerwig was in with Julianne Moore and Ethan Hawke. And about a year after that movie, she had this script and we talked about it and was sort of moving along. And then it just, at that time it fell apart. This was, six or seven years ago. And, um, but she always had this script and kept it in mind. And, um, and then I sort of got back together with Anne Hathaway and Peter Dinklage and Marissa mm-hmm. Tomei. And, uh, great. Cast. She came back to me and, um, I loved working with her and, um, we just went and made it. Uh, Peter Dinklage plays, an opera composer. Um, Marissa Tomei plays a tugboat captain who, he, uh, I don't want to say too much to spoil it, but um, there's like a love triangle with uh, Peter Dinklage, Anne Hathaway and, and Marissa Tomei. Weird. Yeah. It sounds awesome. It sounds really great. When did you guys finish it? Um, we finished, let's see, we finished in this past spring Mm-hmm. And it comes out October 6th in theaters. Nice, 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 nice. Well, that's great, man. I'm excited about it. What a weird, what a great cast. <laughs> I don't know much about it, so I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped to see it, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. There's a lot of great stuff. With We designed two operas within the movie that the Peter Dinklage character wrote. And uh, it was really fun to work on. Yeah. Well, you forget too. Like, whenever you watch a movie, I think you take it for granted. If you watch uh, a sequence with, you know, an opera playing, or if you watch a sequence with, you know, some sort of musical performance, you just like 
and even as a guy that works in this business, I often get lost in movies when I'm, thank God I still do, but I often get lost in movies and I, I have to sort of remind myself like, oh, wait a minute, someone had to put this whole thing, like someone had to write all this music and had to go through the whole process of making this yeah. legitimate. And, and, and that's the ideal is when even people who make movies aren't really thinking about it and it just <laughs> takes you away, away from all your, all your problems, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. A serious movie, it can take you away from all your problems. I mean, that's what they're so movies are, are supposed to be an escape. And, and if they, you know, they do their job well, you sort of have sort of this uh, empathy and you, you, start to see things through someone else's eyes or you start to have a sense of understanding to go down someone else's path, or maybe there are decisions that uh, you weren't able to make in your life, but the character's able to make for you in in their life. And you're able to sort of live vicariously through those folks. And until, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you're trying to learn a little bit more about the human experience with every film that you watch. Right. I think so. Yeah. It's uh I mean, there's, there's some movies that are very anarchistic and punk and, you know, are highly experimental, but I think even those do tell you something about the human condition. Oh, dude. And when I, I mean, even the ones that feel very experimental and punk, uh, if you go back and you think of movies like Elephant or Last Days or any of Gus Van Sant's like avant-garde stuff, that stuff yeah. sticks with me for, 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 for like Elephant specifically yeah. and his casting of that movie and like casting unknowns and kids and, and kids representing kids. And it wasn't just like sexy 20 something year olds pretending to be teenagers and, and watching the awkwardness between children doing something yeah. on screen. I'm so glad you said that, Mike, because Harris shot uh, Elephant and Last Days and, and Jerry, which are yeah. called the Death the Death Trilogy, Gus Van Sant's Death Trilogy. Amazing movies. Um, Amazing movies. I think, for me, I think Elephant is my favorite Harris Davidis photographed movie. It's, really, it's just so, it's so him. And it also has beautiful sound design. and Stunning. Just, yeah, I mean, it's like a, um, it's so the hard down and kind of has this ordinary photographic look, but also voluptuous looking at the same time. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's the combination of the photography is just gorgeous in it, but it's also the combination of like the casting and the blocking. And when I think of that movie, cause it's been years since I've seen it, but there are specific imagery and specific sequences that always come to mind. And it's the simplest stuff. It's like the walking down a hallway, two characters sort of seeing themselves and meeting themselves in the hallway. And like just the way that these, I don't want to call them inexperienced, but I'm, go I'm going to, inexperienced actors or people yeah. sort of meet and, and communicate. It's just so refreshing to me. And I think that's because as a director, I spot other actors' toolboxes consistently. And, yeah. and I think when you're an actor, you have these things that you sort of rely on, like, all right, I'm about to meet someone for the first time. Here's my little quirk, or here's me trying to add a little bit of flair into how I land and do something. And especially the kid with the moppy, uh, the, the moppy blonde hair in that movie, yeah. his body language was so refreshingly different that yeah. anytime, like I'm in the process of trying to make a movie about a, a bunch of young kids and it's a horror movie about a bunch of young kids. And, 
And I know that the 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 difficulty legitimately or logistically is that you start dealing with a certain age of children, you have only a certain amount of time on sets, you only have a certain amount of time with with stuff that you do. But I and you know, being someone that comes out of the nineties, the eighties and nineties, and when you're dealing with horror and you're dealing with teens and horror, it was always sexualized because of the using sex as like a, a draw for cinema, but also the the uh, you know sort of dealing with the tabooness of sex, and that's part of the element of of horror. But I, I'm now in a new position where I feel like I, I want it to be the completely the opposite. I don't want it to be sexy. I want it to be completely fucking awkward because as a teenager, you are fucking awkward with everything you do, and every decision that you make oftentimes is is weighed with you know what you think at that time period the rest of your fucking life. And I, I think that putting two kids together to kiss for the first time in the most awkward way is just refreshing as opposed to the sexualization of that with the euphoria mm-hmm. and everything else that exists right now. So when I was pitching our thing, I was <laughs> to, to the naysay of, of the agents, I was very much like, this is like Elephant, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that movie for that, man. I fucking love that movie for that. Anyway, that it's was, for a long time, I would watch um, the beginning of Elephant before it gets gnarly with, with, when they're like start pulling out the guns. Yeah. The, 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 the first like 10 or 15 minutes is so serene and just like a portrait of Portland, Oregon. And, yeah. you know, there's a, you know, it, it starts getting a little dark. There's like a dad drunk driving, but nothing really happens to him. So it's just very pretty. And you see all these like high school kids getting to school and they look so young and hopeful. And um, there's like the photographer kid taking photos and then developing them. Yeah. And then as soon as the two boys walk into the school with duffel bags, I would turn it off and go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) You got what you needed from it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I don't want to, it sucks. You know, there's movies like that. The shining is another one that. Yeah. So serene and they're so cinematic and, incredible and i very often will say like i just want to watch the beginning i don't want to watch when it gets gnarly but then it, they suck me in and even though <laughs> you know like the shining is so terrifying and really like your skin crawls my skin crawls when you know danny is riding the that bike the, um the big wheel yeah. through the hallway just like oh god it's so terrifying and there's no blood or gore not really in that movie it's just all psychological and so effective and every i think that's my favorite kubrick movie by the way but um, i I love that movie to pieces the way it sucks you in and it's so it's such a great piece of cinema and it's just so terrifying and elephant is that in a different way plus it's based on a real story um yeah yeah I love both of the films. Ah, man, I've never really compared the two, and you're completely right. And when I think of, when I think of The Shining, and yes, the big wheel through the hallways is is a very scary sequence. But I think the one that I constantly come back to is when Danny's in the kitchen eating ice cream with the cook. Yeah, and those the the coverage for that scene, and and like the way that the that the cook just sort of he he baits him in with the ice cream. You know, and he's yeah. like, let's look, look. Uh, because he, he's got a selfish reason. He knows that this kid has the same sort of abilities that he does. 
And just the way he leans down into him and how he cocks his neck and how, like, I can watch that performance and how he starts to talk to this kid who's obviously younger than he is, almost as an equal. And the the coverage of him looking down at, at the kid, I love so much, but I also love just this innocent, floppy-haired, blonde kid. Like, it's the boy that's in my tummy. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's one of the best sequences in that whole fucking movie. Yeah, and the, the way um, you just really feel the, to use the word I already used, the, the ghostliness of all the the the, the people who, all, all the events that have happened in that hotel, you feel, before anything gnarly really happens, you just feel the cameras creeping around and the <laughs> score is really eerie in a way. Yeah. I've never really heard elsewhere. And little by little, it also plays on something, probably the way Jaws does about, you know, underwater. Yeah. When you go into an old hotel, there's something very creepy about it. Even, even when that's fancy and new or, fa- you know, f- not new, but fancy and has like a new renovation. Yeah. 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 There, there's something inherently haunted and creepy about an old hotel. And it, captures that so well and, and it's it's in the book um i've read the but the book is it isolates like one element of the book so well which i think all great adaptations do yeah yeah it's an amazing movie it's an amazing movie it's one of my favorites one of my old <laughs> favorites i'm happy we brought it up and i like the co- I, I really like the comparison with elephant I got to watch Elephant again. It's been a few years and I'm pumped. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pumped to see that. Well, Sam, I got to let's end this conversation here. Um, I, I really appreciate the, the, the talk. Um, and it's a great way for me to spend a Monday morning. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I love your work and I can't wait to continue to watch you develop and, uh, and create really amazing stuff, my friend. Thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right, there it is in the can exciting right good episode great guy i like him a lot i think him and i would totally get along um i uh, just there were a couple moments during the conversation and i think you guys can hear it i think you guys you can hear when we sort of connect and we find some sort of commonality and definitely when we started to talk about elephant now if you guys don't know a lot of you are always asking for movies to watch if you want movies to sort of give you the feeling that you have when you watch The Shining, strange, sort of atmospheric, uh, like movies that don't follow the rules, you should watch a lot of those th- that trilogy from Gus Van Sant. So he did a movie called Elephant, which is based upon school shootings. So it gets pretty intense, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, he did a movie called Jerry, um, and that was with, uh, that's Casey Affleck and Matt Damon. Yes. So they're in that movie. It's a great movie. And then another one of my favorites is his movie Last Days, which was about Kurt Cobain and the suicide. And talk about an atmospheric, strange movie. Um, I would highly suggest those films. If you're just a movie lover, if you're someone that is looking for inspirations, honestly, if you want to look for like the formula that... A24 likes to rip off. Like, I would highly suggest you watch the three of those films. Um, 
And uh, I love the connection that Sam made with The Shining with those because it's 100% true. Um, yeah, man, I, I, I love talking to people that want to share and that are open for storytelling and just the stuff that I really took away from this episode were the moments where Sam was talking about dialogue as a music, as like a musical element, as like a sound effect element. I really, really connected to that and responded to that um, and uh, found that re-inspiring. So if anything, the episode, the whole interview this morning was worth that for me. Um, anyway, what else is going on? Uh, some big stuff happening. I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but I, Gina and I are going away tomorrow and uh, I'll let you guys know how that goes. And um, let's see what else is going on. You were just preparing, man. I'm preparing for the film festival. I'm super excited to be a part of it. Uh, like I said, stick around because we are going to do episodes from the film festival. I'm just trying to figure out the level that we're going to get into it with them. Um, but I know that they want me to interview a bunch of the actors, a bunch of the filmmakers and do uh, film quest centric podcast episodes. So if you've never been to a film festival, you get to go for the ride with us. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and that's coming up. All right. That should be at the end of the month. Oh, and then I'm also preparing myself. I think next week I'm going to Louisiana. So I'm going um, to New Orleans with my brother, which he's been on the show before. You guys have heard him. Go back and listen to the episode. I think I'm going with him and all his firefighter pals to New Orleans for a, a, at least a week. <laughs> Your boy's liver is going to be out, falling out of his body. These guys are. Uh, we're gonna get. We're gonna get in pretty hard with it. Maybe I'll do an episode from there. I'll bring, I'll bring the gear. You guys want me to do an episode? Maybe we'll do like a bar safari episode through New Orleans. Maybe I'll do that. We'll see. I'll, we'll, I'll try. All right. So much going on. Um, but that's it. I'm going to leave you guys now with, an, with another track. And um, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting the show. And as always, I'll see you next Tuesday.